0: Revisited. On this episode we are excited to be interviewing Doug Tolmey about his new book, Nature's Best Hope. Doug is the author of the best-selling book, Bringing Nature Home, and once again has written a powerful book about our relationship with nature and what we as individuals can do to save our ecosystems. Nature's best hope helps us to understand the urgency we all should and must have as we try to make a difference to our ever-changing planet. Four years ago, I was thrilled to have Doug be a part of my film, Negotiating with Nature. Now, I'm excited to welcome Doug to my podcast. When I first learned that Doug had a new book coming out, I immediately called him to see if we could do a phone interview. Here is my conversation with Doug about Nature's Best Hope.
1: I would like to start by having my listeners get to know you a little bit. So what is your background and what led you to write your two books? The first one, Bringing Nature Home, and your new book, Nature's Best Hope.
2: Well, I am a, I am a, a scientist. I'm an entomologist, also trained in ecology. I've been at the University of Delaware for entering my 40th year now. So I've always been interested in how insects interact with plants. What sent me down this road really was, was when my wife and I bought a piece of property in Pennsylvania, we built a house on it. By the time that process was through, it had, the, the property had been mowed for hay, so it was out of mowing. When it grew back, it was thoroughly invaded with non-native plants, invasive plants from Asia. Multiflora rose and Oriental bittersweet, Japanese honeysuckle and bush honeysuckle and on and on and on. So our goal was to restore this this property. The first thing we had to do was just cut paths. It was impossible to walk around. There were were so many non-natives. And I remember the day I was was out just walking around. Because I'm an entomologist, I'm always looking for for insects. And you do that by looking at leaves. If you see a little hole in a leaf, you turn it over and often the insect that made that hole is sitting right there. So this day I was walking around and I noticed a very striking pattern and that was there weren't any holes on these plants from, from Asia and there were there were uh, typical feeding damage on, on native plants. So I said, well gee, this would make a good undergraduate research project. I wasn't excited about it because we learned about host plant specialization in graduate school, way back in the 70s, that most insects that eat plants can only eat the plants on which they have uh, specialized. They've co-evolved with these plants in order to develop the adaptations that allow them to get around those plants' defenses. So there's no surprise that North American insects, in general, cannot eat plants from Asia or South America or anyplace else, because they haven't had that ability, that, that time to co-evolve with them. Uh, so I didn't think it was news, but it still would make an interesting undergraduate research project to compare insect use of native and non-native plants. That led us into the literature and the discovery that people really weren't looking at this. You know, the expansion of in- invasive plants and the degree to which they might be impacting food webs was new. People hadn't been thinking about that. So it was really moving into that that property that, that led me down this road. I started uh, doing research on it. People started asking for talks. The general public was interested. That's what led me to write bringing nature home the the you know my audiences were asking questions and they kept saying, "We want to read something about this." That was published in November two thousand seven, which is you know twelve years ago and since then we've done a lot of research got a number of, of publications documenting the degree to which the use of non-native plants mostly ornamentals that have escaped and become invasive plants in our natural areas. The degree to which that has uh, disrupted the food webs that support, you know, animal diversity around us. Recent statistics are bearing all this out. You know, the UN says we're going to lose a million species and we have three billion fewer breeding birds today than we had 45 years ago. Global insect declines, all of these disastrous statistics motivated me to write, uh, nature's best hope because nature's best hope is is us. We are We are managing, we're gardening the entire planet. And when you look at land use statistics in the U.S., 83% of the entire U.S. is privately owned and conservation at the scale that we need this to happen is gonna happen on private property. It's each one of us who's going to make the difference whether or not the natural world as we know it is going to survive into the future. And one of, the, one of the main purposes of this book is not just to motivate people, but to convince them that, you know, to do otherwise, to do nothing, in other words, is is not an option. We need functional ecosystems. That's what supports the human enterprise. To allow them to decay to, to the point where all of these animals and plants that, that drive these ecosystems disappear, that's gonna be disastrous in, in the future. And now is when we have to ask, not you know, once they do disappear. So how vital ecosystem function is, we all need it, even if we're totally detached from it. And the fact that you as a private landowner, um, or even if you don't own land, you could become active in your local parks. The individual is gonna make the difference here. There aren't nearly enough conservation biologists around to uh, save the day here. It's going to be the individual who goes out and puts the right plants back and rebuilds these food webs and watches nature come, come back to where it used to be. Those were all the motivating factors for, for writing the second book, Nature's Best Hope. We need to repair the ecological damage right here on Earth because it is essential. Ecosystems produce what we call ecosystem services, all of the things that keep us alive, like producing oxygen. You know, oxygen's good, we all need that. That, that comes from plants. And I can, that's why you don't have oxygen up on Mars. There are no plants. All these things are ecosystem services that are produced by the ecosystems we live in. And research has shown that the more species you have in those ecosystems, the better they are at producing ecosystem services. So every time we eliminate a species, either locally or globally, our ecosystems perform more poorly. That's why... UN predictions that we're going to lose a million species in the next 20 years, that's probably an accurate prediction, but I say only if we do nothing. Losing a million species is not an option. It is not a viable option, and we certainly can't afford to to lose more than that. We have got to turn it around and stop talking about it as if it's just too bad. It's more than too bad. It is essential. Creating ecosystems that don't support pollinators is not an option. These things are essential. They're they're essential land stewardship, not just good land stewardship.
1: The beginning of of your book and the introduction, which I loved, you write with what I call a measured urgency. Where we are in our relationship with the planet, can you adjust address just how
2: urgent things are? Uh, they're very urgent. Uh, you know, I don't. I hate the term alarmist. All environmentalists are alarmists, and people just write them off. You know, the deterioration of the ecosystems that support us is uh, accelerating. And again, these these long term studies that are being published one after another are are pointing this out. We are we are rapidly losing the biodiversity that runs our ecosystems. Uh, that's an urgent. Call to action. There are 432 species of North American birds now at risk of extinction. That's more than a third of all of our birds. You know, when they're gone, they're gone. You don't wanna wait until there's only a few left and try to restore them. The time to act is when you've got a lot left. The signal for impending extinction now is declining populations. It's not just when there's a few individuals left. And almost all of our populations are declining. There's a couple reasons for that. The major one is that we've had this idea that that humans and nature cannot coexist. So you've got humans here and nature someplace else. Well, not humans are everywhere and there is no someplace else. So so we need a new model for conservation and that is we're going to share the planet. It's really our only option. So how do we do that? Uh, that's that's the future. Restoration ecology, restoration biology is the future because there's really, uh, I mean we still want to conserve any areas we have left but there's not that many left. So we need to rebuild all of these areas that, that we have dominated without the idea of preserving ecological function. A neutral impact is not good enough. What we need is nothing less than a cultural transformation and what I mean by that is that maintaining the status quo is not good enough these days because the status quo is a disaster. We have more humans on this planet than the planet can support today in the the way in which we are living. We do need cultural change because our culture has been at war with nature forever um, and that's the transformation that we're talking about here. It's, It's an appreciation that we are part of nature. It's not optional. We need fundamental cultural change so that it becomes part of our educational system, that it's not debatable. Now, everybody's going to recognize that it is essential. What is nature's best hope, and and what are we missing? Nature's best hope is uh, us. It's the individual. What we're missing is the fact that a single individual can make a difference. Whether we like nature or not, none of us are going to be able to survive long on this planet without it. It's essential to our well-being because we are part of nature. We humans are not special isolated individuals. We are part of the fabric of life, and we cannot live in isolation from it. We are so used to climate change arguments that are massive global issues that the individual really feels powerless. I mean, I can urge you to stop driving your SUV and put solar panels on your roof, and you can do that, and that will help. You can't see the difference. You don't get that positive feedback loop that we all need. But if you go out into your yard and plant an oak tree, um, you can immediately see the life associated with that tree come to your yard. You can then see the birds that are able to breed in your yard because you have enough caterpillars to feed them. You get that positive feedback loop that that encourages you to plant another oak, or plant a black cherry or plant some other tree, other native plant that's going to support the life around you. The message is that that conservation is going to happen locally. It will be successful. And I'm very confident at that because I've seen it happen at our own house. Some, every place I go, people are telling me, Oh, try this. It works wonderfully. So that's what we're missing is the fact that, that we as individuals really can make a difference.
1: Let's talk some more about the ecosystems that exist around all of us, and in particularly in our backyards. Describe a little bit more what exactly is going on and how important these
2: places are. We can save the natural world and ourselves if we stop segregating ourselves from nature and learn to live with it, become part of it. That is simply recognizing the fact that we are part of nature that we have never been separated from nature. We have always lived off of the bounty that nature has created. So to diminish it means there's less bounty and less to live off of. And that energy comes from the sun. Well, if it wasn't captured by plants and turned through photosynthesis into the food that supports everything, the energy, the sunlight would just bounce back into space and it would be lost. So that's what plants are contributing. They are the drivers of all terrestrial life most aquatic life as well, by capturing the energy from the sun and turning it into simple sugars and and carbohydrates. Okay, that's what plants do. But if the energy stays in the plant, is not passed to other organisms by them eating the plant, then again, it's trapped in the plant, it's in the plant, but it's not going to support any animals around us. This is the big feature here of our local ecosystems is that all plants don't pass on energy equally. Some do it really well, Some don't do it at all. And by that, I mean, there are plants that nothing can eat. They are so well protected that nothing can eat them, which means the energy stays trapped in their tissues and and it doesn't support any animal life. And there are plants like oak trees that pass it on to thousands. And those are the major players that drive the food webs and and the life around us. And I don't like backyard habitat because right away it puts us at a disadvantage. It, It cuts our conservation area in half by saying front yard's off limits, that's gotta be a dead zone. And it also implies that to rebuild functioning ecosystems, it has to be wild and messy and we have to hide it in the backyard. And none of that is true. Uh, That oak tree can be in the front yard just as well as the backyard. So we can have ecosystem function everywhere, not just in our yards, on our roadsides, in our parks, every bit of the human dominated landscape. and that includes a lot of our urban Spaces can be improved uh, in terms of ecological function. In so many places where we go, we make cement the default landscape because it's that's easy to take care of. You don't have to do anything. That also destroys our watersheds. It creates heat sinks in our our cities. It's convenient, but it's an ecological disaster. I can't say much more for lawns because they uh, they also contribute very little. They're not, not contributing to food webs at all. They're sequestering. In terms of, of, of sequestering carbon, lawn is the worst option. Almost any other plant will do it better. They're ruining our watersheds by minimizing infiltration and all of the junk we put on those lawns, the fertilizers and the pesticides, to keep them totally green when they shouldn't be. That just washes into our watersheds and creates dead zones in our oceans. So lawn is that, you know, it can be pretty. We manicure it, and it's, it's a cue for care, shows that we care about our landscapes. But we go crazy with it. We've got an area of lawn the size of New England now in the U.S., and we're still adding hundreds of square miles each year of lawn. So if that continues, we turn the whole world into lawn, then that's the end of us.
1: The other thing that I found really interesting is your idea of the homegrown national park as a response to this situation. Talk about where that
2: idea came from and how you hope it will make a difference. That idea just popped into my head several years ago. I've actually been talking about that in my, my talks for a while. But it occurred to me, you know, if everybody does re-landscape with ecosystem function in mind – We are creating what most people go to national parks to see. We're creating natural areas uh, that will be full of life. It's not going to be like Yellowstone with majestic mountains and waterfalls. But if you're seeking solitude, if you simply want to go out and watch butterflies or birds or or plants and and, uh, find a little peace in your life, all of that can happen right in, in your yard. And what's interesting is, that's getting harder and harder to find when you actually go to a national park. You sit in a traffic jam, you know, there's people all around you. That's not escapism anymore. The opportunity to interact with nature is becoming greatly diminished in our national parks because of the number of, of visitors. So you can create your, your own little park right in your yard and it can be, it can be full of life. That's, again, I'm, I'm saying this from personal experience. That's what Cindy and I have done at home. It is almost impossible for either one of us to walk outside on any given day and not see something that we haven't seen before, or that's really interesting, and we just want to sit sit and watch it. And that has come from, from putting the plants that ought to be here back into our yard, and then they attract all the animals that use those plants. If everybody were to do this, like, you know, I, I combine the notion of Homegrown National Park with cutting the area of lawn in half, and replant half those areas that are in lawn, that's 20 million acres. Well, so if you add up Yellowstone and Yosemite and Great Smoky Mountains and the Adirondacks, almost all of the major parks in the lower 48 states, including Denali, that's still less than 20 million acres. So this homegrown national park idea, in combination, everybody putting it together, will create a, you know, a patchwork of little parks that becomes bigger than all of our our official national parks combined. So that becomes a really powerful force of conservation because these areas will be created in between those national parks and in between our preserved natural areas. And that means they will create connectivity. They will enable the, the creatures that are now confined to these little areas of conservation to be able to spread out and move between Areas of conservation, official areas of conservation, because our yards and our human-dominated landscapes will no longer be no man's uh, land for these, you know, deadly zones for these animals. That's the vision, and that's why I call it homegrown national park. We're going to grow it at home. We can enjoy it at home, and it's going to serve as a, a mechanism for stitching together the natural areas throughout the country. You know, one of the things I talk about in in the book is I talk a little bit about Aldo Leopold and Edward O. Wilson, E.O. Wilson, they both dreamt about, they had these visions of conservation trying to preserve life on, on the planet. And Wilson in particular recently in 2016 wrote a book called Half Earth. Most of the book describes the science that says if we don't preserve ecosystem function on half of planet Earth, we're going to lose all of it. And right away that strikes people as impossible because right now half of terrestrial planet Earth is in agriculture. And that's not going to change right away because we got a lot of of people to feed. So you're talking about the other half. That's where we got 7.7 billion people and all of the infrastructure that supports them. How are you going to have ecosystem function in all of those areas? You know, that's where this book comes in. I think we can do it by sharing our landscapes, all of our landscapes, to a greater or lesser extent with the natural world around us. We're going to get rid of the notion that, that humans are here and nature someplace else. We're now all going to be in the same place. An entirely new approach for humans on planet Earth. We've always been at war with nature. And, you know, in the old days, there were good reasons for that. Nature used to kill us. It was a challenge to live on this planet. And the more we tamed it, the better we, we did. Well, we've overtamed it now, and we've, now we have to learn to coexist with it. And that's, I see that as the model for the future. Homegrown National Park becomes a mechanism for realizing Wilson's dream. How do we get people to act upon these things that are really in their future's best interest? We humans are pretty poor at recognizing what's in our best interest. We're good at recognizing what's in our short-term best interest. Gather as many resources as possible so we can make it through the next couple days. Or And the, the longest term we ever used to think was, how do we get through the winter? So our brains are hardwired to be concerned about short-term gain. Our entire economic system is based on that, you know, valuing short-term gain or, over long-term uh, sustainability of, of any economic system. And that's a challenge. That is why it's not innately obvious to humans why these things are something we have to deal with now. It's why it's been such a, a challenge to deal with climate change. So how do we get past that? That's probably our our very biggest challenge. The good news is that I do see increased interest and increased concern. People are reacting to the issue and recognizing it far more than they used to. So I see progress and that's why I'm not giving up. Um, There does seem to be movement and I, you know, we can convince some people maybe we can convince all the people.
1: One of the things I like about your book is that you give solid and manageable responses to the crisis that we face and that if we listen and make changes, then there is hope. So lastly, what makes you hopeful that in coming decades they may be remembered as what you call in the book, the age of ecological enlightenment?
2: What makes me hopeful is that I have seen The fact that once people learn about these things, they get excited about it. The solutions are not difficult. We don't need to invent anything. Some of the solutions for for climate change is, oh, we have to invent carbon capture machines and pump the carbon into the soil and all these high-tech solutions that the average person can't participate in. Well, the solution to our ecological problems, the average person can participate. As a matter of fact, we need the average person to do it. And it's as simple as planting the right plants, but it's easy these, you know, these are huge problems that have relatively easy solutions. And that's what gives me hope. One of my central messages is that effective conservation is not beyond the reach of the individual. In fact, it is in the hands of the individual. Uh, As I said before, there are not enough conservationists around to do the job. In short, Nature's Best Hope uh, is is a book about solving problems. They're real problems, they're immediate problems, they're urgent problems, but they are inherently solvable. I am hopeful that the book gives you uh, mechanisms by which you can, can do that, ideas of how to actually go about solving those problems.
0: enjoyed our conversation with Doug Talmy, and that you will share it with family, friends and colleagues. Doug's books Nature's Best Hope and Bringing Nature Home are published by Timber Press. The music for this episode is performed by Martin Decato. You can learn more about him and his music at DecatoSanbornMusic.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will subscribe to Nature Revisited on your podcast server. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you would like to learn more about Nature Revisited or share thoughts and suggestions, we would love to hear from you visit us at NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N Productions.com. And please join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. Until then, do remember, we are nature.